Welcome to Down There Aware. I'm Alex. And I'm Mary, Alex's mama. Each week we sit down to discuss various topics concerning gynecologic cancers and women's health care. In 2019, at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with uterine cancer and became painfully aware of just how unaware I was of everything down there. On this podcast, we interview experts, share personal stories, and explore new research. No subject is off limits, so we caution you to listen at your own discretion. Welcome back. We are in part two of our pain series, mini series. So if you have not already listened to part one, stop what you're doing right now. Turn us off, go back one episode and listen to that first episode um, so that you can hear all about that discussion before you get into this one. Kind of the introduction to pain. (laughs) (laughs) We've all experienced it and now let's just talk about it. Uh, But yeah, in last week's episode, we talked about some pains that we had experienced, our worst pain, our strangest pain. um, Different levels of pain. mm -hmm, Different kinds of pain. We talked about the difference between acute pain and chronic pain and how um, treating the root cause of pain really is what the goal is to to get rid of pain. So yeah, go back and give episode one a listen. Um, and we'll see you back here in one second. Okay. We're back. (laughs) Part two. And, uh, we talked, uh, part one about how everybody's different and, you know, that's a running theme we've kept throughout our podcast that, um, we are all unique and, uh, respond and react to things differently. Um, so we, we learned a little bit about what is now known as the pain scale. And um, Alex will probably jump in at some point. But in doing my research, I did read about two doctors who um, in 1970 finally developed the 1 to 10 pain scale. And before that pain scale was developed, Cornell researchers actually published, I mean, people had been trying to quantify pain for a long time. And there was a a study published in 1949, um, like I said, from Cornell. And the biggest problem that they had was um, the top of the pain scale had to be pretty catastrophic. So how do you, in their experiments, they were inflicting pain on people Mm. to have them rate these things. And so when they got to the top pain, they were like, well, what do we do? And so they worked with doctors whose wives were pregnant. And uh, I'm actually going to quote a book that I am reading that mom is also reading called Ask Me About My Uterus by Abby Norman. Um, We're going to talk about this book more in depth later. Um, But this first chapter really kind of struck me. So she says about this experiment, quote, the experiment went like this, as the 13 women in the study labored in actual labor, giving birth labor, um, in between contractions, now get this, the researchers would burn one of their hands with a thermal device the researchers had calibrated to deliver varying levels of intensity. The researchers had set the value of a doll, a measurement of pain, as approximately one-tenth the intensity of the maximal pain, which they were hoping the experiment would help them establish. 
What they really needed was for the women to be able to compare not just the intensity of the two types of pain, but their qualities. Um, Of course, as the labor progressed, the women were understandably less communicative than at the outset. And so the researchers made inferences about their pain experience by noting their behaviors, such as crying, complaining, sweating, and degree of alertness and cooperation. Not surprisingly to women anyway, the pain experienced by at least one of the women achieved the maximum value for the doll pain measurement scale at 10.5, what the researchers called, quote, the most intense pain which can be experienced. So that was just a little snippet from uh, asking about my uterus, which we'll get into more details in another episode. But in discussing pain, that's pretty interesting. Well, and again, I understand the importance of trying to quantify um, in order to communicate better, in order to provide treatment. However, like we talked about in part one of this pain miniseries, um, different people, you know, I birthed a 11 pound, three ounce child vaginally. And I would not say that was the worst pain I've ever had, the labor or the delivery. And go um, back to part one to hear what your worst pain was. <laughs> and so, um, di- all, again, all people are different. So in order to do a study and use however many people to um, make the mark, um, what am I trying to say, to to quantify and, you know, lay out the one to 10, which it is now. Right. Um, how reliable is that? I, go ahead. Well, and it's really interesting. Abby talks about the one to t- or zero to 10 pain level. Um And she talks about uh, individuals specifically. So she says, since we all have varying degrees of tolerance for pain and have equally varied experiences with different types of pain, it makes the scale feel kind of meaningless, Uh, especially when you consider that the person trying to ascertain how much pain the patient is in has his or her own experiences with pain that are thrown into the mix, too. So a doctor trying to figure out how much pain a patient is in when she says, quote, it's worse than a broken leg, but not as bad as childbirth is still going to be able to guess what me, uh, what that means based on his or her own experience and perceptions yeah, of pain. That is so true. Um, but I get it. I get that there needs to be some way to communicate some universal way. And, um, You know, so back to the doctors who in 1970 finally decided we're going to do the zero to 10. Um, And then in 1981, a nurse and a child life specialist got together and did the face um, pain scale for children. And that's actually used in hospitals for adults now and doctor's offices um, to try to communicate pain. It's always been hard for me to use the numbers, you know, nurses come in to say, okay, what's your pain today on a scale of zero to 10. And that has always been difficult to me to try to communicate. I understand they need to hear something. Um, so I play the game and, you know, I say what I think matches closely enough, but it's always been hard for me. My problem with the pain scale in terms of, you know, go into the doctor and okay, what's your pain today is I in general don't like absolutes. I don't like a 10. I like when I'm doing a survey for something, I never do a zero or a five or like 
it's never the top or the bottom. I always have to find something in the middle because specifically about pain, I've never broken a bone. I've never birthed a child. I've never been impaled by a tree branch. So I know intellectually that there are pains worse than I have felt. But this feels like a 10 to me because at this point in time, it's the worst pain I've ever felt. So does that make the pain scale movable? It's not absolute that it, you know, and everybody feels like we talked about last week, everybody feels pain differently. So I don't know, creating a scale for something that is not absolute or finite really seems kind of silly. Well, and like we talked about in um, the last episode, when I had my worst pain, I, I kept trying to describe it to the nurse because I felt like she wasn't understanding that I felt like, you know, she didn't know me and she thought, boy, this lady is just a real wimp <laughs> kind of thing. And, um, you know, I said to her, I'm telling you, this is worse than my open heart surgery pain. I'm telling you, I birthed an 11 pound child. This is worse than that. I was just trying to give her some context. And, um, I, I didn't even feel like that worked. I mean, so when, when she asked zero to 10, well, for me, it was a 10 and more like a 15, <laughs> but um, it, it didn't work is what I'm saying. The The scale didn't, I wasn't communicating or she wasn't receiving my communication or my information um, in an, um, an effective way. And the on-call doctor oh. also, you know, talk about what Abby Norman is talking about in her book about how doctors bring their own experiences into things. When the nurse called him, now this was late at night, so having to call an on-call doctor instead of someone who was in the hospital uh, you know, during their shift, woke him up, described the injury, accident, whatever you want to call it, and described mom's pain level, pain description, all of that, and he said she can have Tylenol. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. And... The nurse was like, no, you don't understand. She said it's worse than childbirth. She said it's worse than open heart surgery. And this guy was such a jerk that he he was just pissed from being woken up. He didn't believe and talk about not believing women. He didn't believe mom had this actual pain and said she could take Tylenol, which obviously didn't touch the pain. Yeah, that and. You know, I get what you're saying about how he was the one on call. He uh, was woken up. But you know what? That's the profession he chose. Well, you yes, know, I'm not excusing it. You have to be on call. <laughs> and he was on call. So you know what? Do your job. Well, absolutely. And that's a whole other discussion yes. for another day. Uh. But yes. Yeah, so, you know, I think particularly in this day and age with um, the prevalence of prescription drug abuse, opioid abuse. Um, practitioners are hesitant, I think, whether that's their own moral being, you know, being hesitant or whether it's not wanting to be sued or have their insurance be involved um, and, you know, have, have other issues happen. Yeah. I think they're hesitant to prescribe any kind of pain medicine. And along those lines, I even remember saying to Alex, 
you know, maybe she just thinks I want pain meds and that's not who I am. Tell her about your Aunt Maggie. <laughs> I remember saying, tell her about Aunt Maggie. So she would know that wasn't me. Right. You know, and- I, I was keenly aware of abuse mm-hmm. of prescription drugs. I'd lived with my sister dealing with it. And, you know, I wasn't going to go down that road. Right. And, you know, I have the same kind of issue with my low back pain. Um, I'm treated fairly regularly every six months, every six to 12 months, I get um, steroid injections um, that help kind of numb the the nerves in that area. But that's because you're trying not to have surgery at this young of an age. Right. So, you know, that's for me to push off back surgery because eventually my condition will require back surgery um, and a spinal fusion to be particular. And those once you have one back surgery, you're going to continue to have back surgeries for the rest of your life, and you're going to even be in more chronic pain. So as long as you can push it off, that's better. So I'm choosing to do these steroid injections. They're relatively affordable. They last for a long time, and they work for me. Um, and they don't impair you cognitively. No, it, I mean, it literally doesn't affect me at all. The I think 30 minutes after the procedure, my from my butt down through my legs is numb and it's a little wobbly to walk, but you have somebody drive you home and it's fine. Um, but it was really interesting. This last time I got an injection a few months ago, my insurance company called and they said, we just are calling people who get this kind of procedure for this kind of pain and just want to talk to you about your experience. And I was like, okay. So, um, went through how it has been working, but I'm having, you know, the gap is closing between when I need treatments. Um, you can get them every month, but I have been trying to stretch them out one for cost, but also, um, to help lengthen the time that, um, you know, is between them so that I don't need it as much. And she said, now this is my insurance company. She said, have you ever thought about prescription pills for your pain? Oh, And I said, yes, I have. And that is something I'm not willing to do right now. I'm not in a place where I want to be taking controlled drugs. I don't want to be taking opioids for this kind of uh, treatment. When I can get another kind of treatment for this pain um, that works, that is non-habit forming, it's non-regulated, it's just very, it's easy. Um, some people might be afraid of needles, but I don't care, you know, stab me all you want. Um, so I just thought number one, it was disgusting that my insurance company probably because it's cheaper for them. Mm. Um, but I did want to, you know, bring up some facts about, because we do have an opioid crisis. And so, um, according to hhs.gov, which is the U S department of health and human services, um, so opioid by the numbers, nine billion in grants from the HHS to states, tribes, and local communities to fight the opioid crisis from 2016 to 2019. So $9 billion has gone into fixing this major problem. Um, over the last, uh, from 2017 to 2018, there's been a 4.1 decline in drug overdose deaths, which is good. Um, but 1.27 million Americans are receiving medication assisted treatment and 142% increase in patients receiving medication assisted treatment. Um, 
you know, it just kind of blows my mind. And um, two out of three drug overdose deaths in 2018 involved an opioid, not heroin, not meth, opioids, prescription drugs. Well, and, you know, that that hits close to home for us. And we've um, we've lived with that whole um, mess. But in all we know is our own experience, but in our experience, a lot of the problem seems to be that there's just not a really good um, database or check and balance. Um, For instance, my sister would go to different ERs and different doctors and complain of a pain and get um, some painkiller, some opioid. And, um, then a couple of days later when those were gone, when they should have lasted probably a couple of weeks, she'd go to a different ER or a different doctor and, um, do the same thing. And, and it was just kind of a constant, um, routine of hers because she was addicted and she would do anything to get those pills. And, um, you would just think, and I know HIPAA is out there, and I think that was a lot of the problem, but you would think there would be some sort of red flag they could put. She didn't use anybody else's name. <laughs> she used her own name. So if there had been some kind of red flag um, on her associated with her so that and we're talking about she was in a little rural town a small town so it's not like she was in los angeles or new york um so i don't know that seemed to me like it should be a little easier to monitor and that was our experience with it and it was a bad experience well and you know the whole opioid crisis started when these drug manufacturers pushed out these really great pain relievers, check out all this. And they gave physicians and providers incentives for prescribing these drugs because they worked and, oh, they, there are no symptoms. There are no side effects. There are no, you know, whatever. Um, and so they were encouraged to prescribe these drugs and then they would refill them because, you know, they were non-habit forming or whatever. And then it just ended up being, not the case and people started to get who were probably taking them for a knee surgery or you know back chronic back pain or like a real pain um but then it just got to be you know a case of misuse and according to hhs in 2019 an estimated 10.1 million people aged 12 or older misused opioids in the past year Wow. Well, and in Maggie's case, she had three ruptured brain aneurysms, three. And, and, she, and three subsequent brain, brain surgeries. surgeries. And so she lived through three ruptured brain aneurysms and subsequent brain surgeries. And that's really how she got hooked. She um, took those pain med- medications to get through it and passed it. She had some impairment after each of one of those surgeries some were minor some were a little more serious but um, even at that she wasn't um, monitored and you know um, what word am I looking for she she just wasn't 
she didn't have somebody in the medical field who was concerned about the opioids. And of course, that's been, that was a while back, but mm-hmm. still. But we've known about it for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and to, to put that misused opioid number in uh, perspective, so um, specifically 9.7 million people misused prescription pain relievers. And think about this. Now, this is part is crazy. Only 750, uh, excuse me, 745,000 people used heroin that year. Oh. Wow. So almost 10 million people are misusing opioid pain relievers and less than a million people used heroin. I mean, it, it really puts it into perspective um, in how big of an issue it is it? because it's so accessible. Yeah. Well, and you know what is a shame that um, there are people who can benefit from short-term opioid use um, because of certain pain uh, and because of this, well, and like my experience in the hospital with the doctor on call, he, w- he just wasn't going to give me anything. Um, it didn't know me, you know, but made that decision, made that judgment. Um, so it's a shame that people who could benefit from it on a short-term basis in healing are denied because um, there is such abuse out there. Somehow we ought to be able to figure it out. Now, I do think... There's a lot of information out now about opioid abuse, and a lot of people are working on trying to turn that around. They're also looking at alternative um, therapies that can be used for pain, like music therapy. And we know as musicians that um, that is certainly a fabulous alternative to drugs. It works, and... um, it's been known to work and there are great programs in different hospitals even now that are very successful, uh, pet therapy. And we, we know our Sadie Mae is our therapy dog, whether she's certified or not, but not only does she know when we need her to snuggle with us, you know, we know what good it, how much it helps us when she wants to snuggle when we're not feeling so great. Um, meditation and prayer. That's another thing that people use to, um, as an alternative to pain meds and yoga. Some people, um, use yoga as a way to deal with pain. So there are a lot of other ways that are really becoming popular and, um, people are talking about hopefully to turn the tide, uh, away from opioid abuse. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast about menopause. It was a gynecologist talking about menopause. I'll link, uh, her in the description. Um, but she was talking about when she started experiencing hot flashes, that one of the things, um, her doctor helped her with was, um, she described it as like a mantra, where she would have this phrase that she would say to herself because she understood the biology of what a hot flash was and that it was an imbalance of hormones. Her body was not really hot, um, but it felt like it was hot. And so she would have this mantra in her head. I can't remember what it is, but it's essentially like, you're not hot, you're not whatever. And she said it worked. That just taking the time to recognize how you were feeling, to tell yourself, it's biological. You aren't actually burning up, you know, whatever. Um, and so then she would, she said her hot flashes went away quicker than when she didn't use her little mantra. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, the mind is a powerful thing. The mind is a powerful thing. And, um, 
you know, more and more uh, marijuana and cannabinoids have been used. Um, I and didn't know cannabinoids was a word. It is. <laughs> cannabinoid is a word, just like opioid is a word. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. So cannabinoids are, you know, cannabis related how whatever the pain management kind of uh, aspect of that and whatever they pull out of it um and you know it's really interesting the use of medical marijuana actually dates back more than five thousand years there have been long-term historical uses um and preclinical evidence confirming the analgesic effects on a number of pain conditions um so it was actually moved removed from the farm i don't know how to say this word pharmacopoeia pharmacopoeia i don't know i don't have it in front of me <laughs> <laughs> um in 1942 anyway it was taken out of like the medical use allowances um you know uh back in 1942 but to date 34 states and the district of columbia have legalized the use of medical marijuana um while seven other states and DC have uh, released it for or legalized it for recreational use. But for medical use, I have read about children who have um, seizures where they get some not, it doesn't make you high. It doesn't give you any kind of effects of like smoking marijuana would, but they get oil or um, a pill or something that's made with this cannabinoid. And it maintains and controls their seizures. Um, and so a lot of people are using that also for pain relief. And I know some cancer patients use it, um, if they are going through chemo and they are nauseous and they don't have an appetite, you know, you think of people who are high all the time as getting the munchies Mm -hmm. and things like that. And it actually increases their appetite and helps settle their stomachs. Um, but they're not going around smoking joints or eating edibles all day. They're, you know, taking it in a prescribed way that doesn't interfere with how um, their day-to-day activities. Mm. Well, that has been a lot of information about pain, our experiences with pain. Um, and that's a universal topic for sure. It is, you know, we try to keep our topics to women's health care, um, and, and things that affect women, but pain affects everyone. Um, and so we hope that by helping label pain, describe pain, define pain, um, and share some of our personal experiences over the last two episodes that, um, we've helped you, I don't know, feel heard feel normalized that you know some of the pain maybe that you've gone through um and how it it is difficult to describe pain to your doctors um and to help them understand that you are actually in pain specifically women continue to be an advocate for yourself in all things but especially if you're in pain um figure out a way to get that point across to get some relief because what we do know is that if you're in pain something is wrong yeah and you shouldn't be in pain so we need to figure out what the root cause is and fit and make it go away you know fix it don't just treat the pain treat the cause of the pain Mm -hmm. exactly so thanks for listening to this episode as always you can find us on our website www 
so many w's um dot down we are at down there aware on all social media platforms you can find us on twitter instagram facebook pinterest and now tiktok um if you have any suggestions for topics if you want to share your story you have a cancer story you have a female something story that has to do with medicine i don't know talk to us about it email us check it out um and let us know what you want to hear if you have topic ideas um we would love to hear from you you can always find our show notes with links to relevant material on our website and on that website, you can also check out our stickers and magnets for purchase. Um, we got some great merchandise. It's our logo, and we think it's cute. And we want everybody to be down there aware and spread the news. Thanks for listening.